Thank you for tuning in to The Ugly Truth. My name is Victoria. My name is Brandon. My name is Angelica. And my name is Allie. Today's discussion is going to be on the book Cuz by Danielle Allen. She wrote this book as a memoir for her baby cousin, Michael Allen. Michael Allen was a young black man born November 30th, 1979, which was during the unfolding of the drug war. He came from a troubled home, which forced him to have to prove himself on the streets at an early age. He also created an alter ego and was also known as Big Mike. When he was Big Mike, he was a drug dealer and he was also known as someone not to be messed with. But we'll get into that later. The drug war is a deep-rooted drive for mass incarceration in the United States. This is a major issue which is still going on today. Let's dive into the major events of the book. Michael was incarcerated for the first time at age 15. He was found guilty for attempted carjacking, where he was shot. While being transported to the hospital, he confessed to two other attempted robberies. You guys, 11 years in prison. He got charged as an adult at the age of 15. Yeah, 11 years is a long time for carjacking. The way Michael's case was handled was unfair. Yeah, his actions were wrong and he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. I just wanted to clarify that real quick. But he didn't even get away with it. And he had an accomplice. The accomplice walked away free. They never found out who he was. And Michael did not snitch on him either because he was a good friend. And his accomplice did not even try to turn himself in. The point I'm trying to make here is that Michael was not a bad kid. He was just a kid who made a bad decision. No child is perfect, especially at the age of 15, I mean... Just like the author asks, what were you doing at 15? I can relate to Michael because I've grown up in poverty all my life and at 15 I got caught for stealing at Sears. I even almost got arrested, but luckily I didn't walk out with the merchandise so they couldn't even charge me. But growing up in poverty and in a troubled home with no stability makes you make bad decisions. Just like the carjacking was a bad decision on Michael's part, the most upsetting part was the ambulance confession. Let's play a little game. Close your eyes, clear your mind into quietness and emptiness, and listen to the words coming out of my mouth. Picture yourself in a situation where you're in an ambulance. You're laying on the stretcher with these gadgets all over your body, trying to save your life, and blood is everywhere. You're thinking what kind of mess I got myself into and why am I here? Congratulations, you just got shot in the neck for trying to hijack a car for street credit. There are two officers riding in the ambulance with you, who I presume they are mainly white, are reading your Miranda, Miranda rights and so on. You feel heavy with pain, not because you're fighting for your life, but you want to clear your conscience if you pass on to the other side of heaven or hell. You spill your guts saying that you found a pistol two and a half weeks ago nearby an alley by the McDonald's nearby your house. But wait, there's more. You also confess you robbed several citizens during the previous days. You robbed one person $20 and another person $2. The funny part is they were not even reported until now. To you, you were vulnerable and raw you're confessing your sins to your priest, begging for forgiveness and willing to do better. 
officers, this is their statement and receipts on the crimes that they have labeled you. Just like you broke the rules, the officers did as well. Knowing that parents and guardians should have been present with you when asking questions and getting statements from a minor, or you could just plead the fifth. Well, of course you're bling out the neck like chocolate fondue. Now open your eyes. Take a moment to think how you felt. The officers knew that Michael was a minor and was in critical condition handcuffed on the stretcher. I agree, you make the bed that you sleep in. But if you know that someone is dying and could lose their life, at least show some damn compassion. Unfortunately, compassion was never shown to Michael. His life became a whirlwind of affliction. During his time in prison, Michael met Isaiah Brent, AKA Bree. This relationship was dysfunctional and toxic. Domestic violence is never the answer, you guys. Yeah, I agree. Michael felt trapped in the cycle of domestic violence with Brie because he was very vulnerable. Domestic violence is not easy to discuss because it's a complicated topic and each case is different. In Michael's case, he was used to an unstable lifestyle because nothing was ever stable in his life and he had an attachment to Brie. I think he felt like if he left Brie, he would lose someone who he had a true connection with. Yeah, she showed various red flags and anyone can say why didn't he just leave her, but it's much more complicated than that. She was dangerous. He was probably scared to leave her because he thought she would come after him and his family. For instance, my aunt was in a domestic violence situation and it got to the point where she was scared to say anything back when he would yell at her because she felt like he was going to hit her. And this is because he once pushed her while she was holding her one month old child and she was scared to even call us when it happened because she felt like he was going to attack her. It's very complicated and these people often feel trapped and scared like they have no way out, especially someone like Michael who already had a troubled life prior to this. Yes, I agree with the red flags. The red flags were everywhere from the very beginning. Brie was incarcerated for attempted murder before they even became lovers. Once they got into a relationship, she was obsessive. She became violent. She cut him three times within a five month span. She came from a family that was involved with criminal activity. She went so far as to walking up and down the street breaking windows, yelling, and causing a scene when she was the one doing the cheating so much that she gave him HIV. I know the importance of HIV, but for those who don't know what HIV is, HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus that's a sexually transmitted infection that travels throughout certain body fluids, which attacks the body's immune system, including white cells that fight off diseases. You can contact HIV from having unprotected sex, mainly anal sex, or just being reckless as fuck and having a jolly old time. For Michael, his life was mostly spit in prison. He never had a female contact nor a girlfriend. Michael contacted the HIV virus from Brie from having unprotected sex and double-crossing him with multiple partners. And according to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, Blacks have the highest percentage of accounting the HIV virus. As a black man, the statistics are not looking good for me based on my race. Since I'm a homosexual black man, the odds are not in my favor. Right, the HIV was huge. The fact that Brie gave him HIV was a massive part of his life. Brie was so unhinged that she was the reason he went back to prison for violating his parole, which locked him up another year. This was the year that he became unrecognizable to his family. And you would think that this would be enough for him to leave her, but unfortunately, this cycle continued until she shot him in the kitchen and took his life.
So the way the police handled the situation was completely wrong. There was no parent present, and it was unconstitutional for them to consider his confession and use it against him. So how did this affect his trial and his sentencing? Based on the police statement that Michael stated in the ambulance, they added more years into his sentence, which led him to be tried as an adult. In 1970, in California, news coverage reported the age of consent in California was six, was 14 through 16, based on its bogus stories. And but the legal age was 18 in 1913. Today, society has not changed based on its harsh penalties that have remained in several states. How can we call these our young adults the future of tomorrow when we keep blocking them up? and not give them the tools to become the future. Today's juvenile system is damaged based on its half-assed resources and programs to structure our adolescents' futures. Every year, more than two million children, youth, and young adults come into the juvenile system based on the committed misdemeanors and felonies. Public defenders, who are referred to as the Dennis Rodman's of law, are limited based on their practice when it comes to representing children. They did not know the facts of the juvenile's background, adolescence development, and it lacks of access of juvenile experts. Finding a good lawyer is like winning the lottery, like Michael's reality, when his public defender cannot defend him as much as reducing his sentence. Michael's public defender was so disoriented in his court trial he had to ask his mother to intervene, leading him to his 11-year sentence. Let's see how deviance plays a role in all of this. An example of primary deviance would be how Michael was being Big Mike and hiding that life. Or how he was being lovers with the man and hiding it because he was afraid that his mother would pass judgment with her religious views. Have you ever had to live two lives? Yes I, uh, yes, I have lived two lives myself based on Michael's experience. I hid my homosexuality for 25 years because it was not the norm based on the culture that I was raised in. In my family's point of, in my family's eyes, I was the Brennan who have a wife, a family, and a white picket fence home. To the gay community, I was Brennan who danced to Britney Spears' baby hit me one more time and thought Lady Gaga was the shit. Since I came out to the, since I came out to my family, they didn't accept me at first, but now they accept me, and I still believe Lady Gaga is still it's the shit. Now let's go into secondary deviance, and some examples of secondary deviance are attempted robbery, the carjacking, stealing, the domestic violence, and the drug dealing. And something that I believe is very important to take into consideration when discussing deviance is realizing that the fact that secondary deviance was going to be illustrated in Michael's life because of where he lived. The environments he lived in growing up just got worse and worse. He grew up having to prove himself on the streets and put on a tough face. So yeah, Michael did get into trouble drug dealing and this is because of where he lived. The way society is put together is made for people in poverty to fail. Michael had no option but to turn to selling drugs in order to make the money he needed, and the means to acquire a job of such were conveniently, and I say this in sarcasm, right in his neighborhood. So in conclusion, from the very beginning, his chances were already really slim. He was a black man, born in poverty, surrounded by violence, 
He had a lack of role models in his life. He was financially unstable, fatherless. He had a broken home. I mean, the odds were never in his favor. These things became normal to him as he was growing up. In comparison to Danielle, his cousin, who came from a home with two parents and always lived in the nicer areas, both her parents were successful and provided her with stability. That encouraged her to follow in their footsteps. It's one thing to visit the hood and another thing to live in the hood. One way we can make a change would be decriminalizing drugs, not necessarily legalizing them. But by decriminalizing them, we would have less war on drugs and less incarceration, which means less tragedies like Michael.